0: Okay, so before we start um, the second chapter, I'll just recap what we discussed in the first chapter and a little bit of an introduction. So the chapter one and chapter two are kind of setting the groundwork of how the relationship and what it means that God, which as we described God of Judaism, is a being that is... God is what predates all being, right? He's the entity that is beyond whatever comes before any creation. That's what God is. And we live in a very finite world. So, and we are very, we are creations, we're beings, we have beginning, we, you know, we have limitations, so on and so forth. And we're trying to understand the relationship and the unity between God and his creation. So what we started off last week and the, Al- the Alter Rebbe took from Hasidic teaching and from different verses in the Torah and in the uh, Psalms and so on and so forth, kind of making a statement more than explaining, but giving, trying to give us the idea that creation as we see it, as a the solid material earth that we see is not so solid and not so material as we see it actually every entity at its core is constantly being kept in existence by a spiritual energy or as the aldrebi used that the words of creation the words that god said initially by creation continuously keep every living element not only alive but also also present as we said whether it's a animate person to the stone which has no you know real mode of expression its existence not only its expression is only possible by the energy that's within it now we gave a parable for example you look at a table you look at any solid piece from your eyes perspective the way your eye processes it right away you see it as a solid thing if you then take a microscope and you look at anything under a microscope you'll see there's a bunch of moving particles that makes up almost everything So the lens in which we see the world, we may see it as a very materialistic world. And Netanya says in the opening chapter, we have to understand that that's only to our eyes. But the truth is that everything at its core is a constant burst of godly energy keeping that into existence. From taking it from a matter-of-fact statement in chapter 1, in chapter 2, Natanya is going to try to now share this information in a more logical way terminology and show us why it makes sense that everything in this world needs a constant boost of God's energy or the words of creation in order to keep it in existence. And that's what he's going to do in chapter two. Now, I wanted to just digress, if I may, before we begin the actual chapter on the reason why the al rebbe takes this approach. First taking it as this is the way it is because the Torah says so. And then in chapter two, trying, you know, breaking it down analytically and, you know, in more, you know, process it. And this fits very much in a very strong theme in general in Judaism. A big part of this whole, this section of Tanya is teaching us a deeper understanding in faith and our relationship with God. The first time that we built a solid relationship with God as a nation was at the giving of the Torah, is when we sort of say God chose us by Abraham, he chose us when he took us out of Egypt, we as a nation, we kind of chose God by the giving of the Torah, by Mount Sinai. And one of the encounters that goes back and forth is when Moses is going back and forth from God, and you know... Part of the story is alluded to in the book of Exodus. It's clarified a little bit more in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses recaps the story. But Moses comes to the Jewish people and asks them if they would be willing to accept the Torah and the will of God. And the Jewish people answer unanimously, "Na We will do, and then we will hear. And because of the response that the Jewish people had, they were actually rewarded. And they were given special honors. It says that there were spirits, that there were crowns of glory that the Jewish people wore until the sin of the golden calf, where at that point they were told to, sort of say, take off their crowns. They became unworthy of the crowns that they earned. But what was the statement, Nas of Anishma, we will do and they will hear, that was such a powerful statement? And what's the uniqueness? And the uniqueness is in the fact that they said first, we'll do, and then we'll hear. Most people, or the cynic approach to life, is first convince me something, and then I'll consider it. Where the Jewish people, their approach was, this is something from God. Let me, I'm going to accept, and then I'm going to understand. So when it comes to principles and ideas in the Torah, there's a certain sentiment where faith comes very strongly in, is that before we try to rationalize, we have to appreciate what it is that we are trying to rationalize. If we look at the Torah and we look at God as another test subject or study element, then no, I don't have to accept anything until I understand it. But if we understand God as the ultimate truth that there is in the world, and the Torah is given by God himself, so it's not a question in my analysis and my trying to understand if the Torah is true or not, it's the analysis is more for me to understand the truth that lies within the Torah, and that's a very different point of study or so on that one is trying to have. An example of this: there's a professor. His name is Dr. Velvel Green, and he was a. I probably shared the story once before. He was a NASA. He was a NASA scientist. I believe by now he's retired, um, and he was not a very religious or or even believing Jew for a while. And he got to know Rabbi Feller in Minnesota. And he started learning a little bit about Torah. And he had many questions about Torah, science, and so on and so forth. And Rabbi Feller was felt a little, inca- you know, limited on what he could answer. And seeing that the scope of the questions were very large, he encouraged him to send his questions to the Rebbe. So he sent his letters to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe would always respond. But... Most of the time ignored his questions about Torah and science and instead responded to his more personal questions and always encouraged him to do another mitzvah. After a few years of this exchange and Rabbi Dr. Green getting more involved with his with the, I believe with his with the Chabad there, he became very involved with his Judaism and practicing a lot of his Judaism. And he eventually, once he became a lot more involved within the Jewish community, he came to visit the Rebbe in person. When we came into the Rebbe in person, the Rebbe pulled out all his le- pulled out from his desk all the letters that he had sent him prior, and started answering him every single question in his uh, from his the letters that he had sent over the years about Torah science. And Doctor Green was like astounded. He asked why, Rebbe, "Why didn't you answer me these questions when I sent them?" And he said, "When you sent them, you were still looking at Torah and science from the outside." and had i started answering your questions then we would still be debating the subject now that you understand god is a part of your life now we could discuss on a more level playing field the questions that you had so when it comes to analyzing torah it comes to analyzing god um we have to there it's a, you know when we take an approach where where we're not where god isn't it question, it's our understanding, our perception, which we need to challenge, then it's a very different form of conversation. And that's why in the answer he kind of lays out, you know, this is the reality. And now let's try to see how we can understand that reality, sort of say, right? So yeah. over here in the first chapter, the al didn't use a lot of logical terminology, kind of stated as is, but now in chapter two, and an important part, too, in Judaism, this is why if you ever, Torah, Judaism is unique, I would say, over other religions, is the fact that we encourage questioning. Yes, there is a fundamental, the base of everything we're saying is premised on a certain sense of faith and belief, but we're meant to challenge that we can relate to and understand that belief and internalize it in a, as rational way as possible. But our rationale doesn't take away the core fundamentals of our beliefs either. So after establishing the, funda- the premise, now in chapter 2, he's going to give us a little more analytical approach. And he's going to do that by addressing, A, the person who doesn't believe that God's presence is necessary once the world is created. And sees the creation of the world just like any other creation. The skeptic, and also address um, slightly as well the believer, which understands that God, is, that the world can't just happen and can't exist on its own. But why does God need to interact in the world the way He does? So we'll we'll get to this. We'll we'll work through the text, and I'll try to explain it as we go through. All right. So chapter two. From this, the concept that we basically explained in the last chapter is derived a response to the heretics and the root of the error of those who deny divine providence, and the signs and wonders recorded in the Torah is disclosed. So basically, the al rebbe. well, let me read this and I'll explain. They err with their faulty analogies in what they compare the work of God, the maker of heaven and earth, to the work of man and his schemes. So the basically, the al Trebbi says as follows. People that have a hard time believing in miracles or in divine providence, the fact that everything that happens, the things that happen in the world are all orchestrated by God. The core issue that they struggle with in this belief is the fact that they misunderstand creation itself and how the world's existence is. If you Because they see the world's existence as one just like any other action that someone had, that is self-independent and runs solely on the rules of nature and is limited to the world rules of nature, therefore they can't understand how divine providence, God is still present in every moment within the world, and how miracles happen within the world, because the world is, you know, should be standing on its own. As he describes just what's the act what's a creation of man once for once the Smith fashions a vessel the vessel no longer requires the hands of the Smith even when the Smith's hands are no longer upon it and he walks about in the market the vessel continues to exist in the same exact form and image as when it left the Smith's hands right so most of the time the creation that we're used to or something that's formed as we're used to is once it's made, it's independent it's no longer dependent on the maker for it to exist once a vessel is formed it gets stand on its own the whole maker doesn't need to continue hold it right when someone's making pottery so as long as the form as long as the cup is forming the hand of the maker needs to be there but the second the vessel's formed you take your hands off and that's it it's ready to go on its own and the same thing is with everything we need that interaction that man, man usually needs for creation is usually only in the act of creation or use, but it exists on its own. And this is how these fools imagine the creation of heaven and earth. So this is how people which struggle with the idea of miracles or divine providence assume creation of the world is the same way. Just as we form something or create something in this world that stands on its own, so too God created the world and built the rules of nature. So therefore, it should be able to run on its own. And this is, you know, very much when you're raised in an environment, you get accustomed to that environment. You see it all the time. People which live near water are amazed when they come to the mountains. Someone who lives near the mountains, they amaze whenever they're near water. Someone who grows up with the snow can't wait to get to the beach. Someone who grows up with the beach is all excited when it starts snowing and so on and so forth. The environment that you grow up in, you tend to take for granted and you get excited by so you don't necessarily see the excitement or the beauty of your environment. So we're raised with also by nature because we're raised within a world which is running and is functioning by, right? Right we don't necessarily stop to realize the miracle of that existence that we're in so our natural inkling will be kind of of the previous why should i expect or how can there be a change you know we've been living our life and se- things seem to be running on a certain pattern and so on and so forth so why should my mind won't assume by default by looking around that there's something more to creation however if you think about it for a second creation cannot be like that of anything else. Why? As so we will explain over here. However, they are blind, and this is what I said. A lot of times, our environment, because we're we're born into it, we're you know we're blind to it. You know, there's the famous uh, parable of the uh, climber who decides that he's going to climb one of the most ambitious uh, you know mountainsides possible. You know, very steep. And he trains himself for years and years to get to it. And he climbs the mountain and he's climbing and climbing and climbing. And he reaches the top and he's all excited. And he gets to the top and he sees there's a little kid at the top of the mountain. And he's shocked. You know, I trained for years to get to this. And there's this little kid here. And he asks the kid, how did you get to the top? And he says, what do you mean? I was born here. Right. So the, you know, when we're born into, a, when we're born somewhere, we don't necessarily realize or we're blind to the greatness of where we are. So he says as follows over there, blind to the major distinction between man's creative work and his schemes, which consist of making one thing out of another, of merely modifying the form and shape of raw material, of fashioning an ingot of silver into the shape of a vessel, and the creation of heaven and earth, which is a creation of existence out of nothingness. Creation that we're used to is not really a creation. It's a reformatting, so to say, of something that pre-existed. So yes, metal existed or silver existed before it was formed into a cup or into a candlestick or into anything else. Even energy is exists within this world we're just finding ways to harness it. And electronics, every invention that's ever happened, as ingenious as it may be, is only discovering possibilities of what pre-existed already. So any creation and invention that there is, is only applying resources in another way. And that's why it can exist even when we step away, because it existed in a certain way even before we stepped in to make it. We're just rebranding it for a different use. However, when it comes to creation, we talk about creation itself. Creation itself is coming at some point. There was nothing. And for existence to exist from no existence, that's we can't we don't have anything we could compare, really compare to that in our world. What do we can we compare it to? What would be an iota we could rationalize to understand this thing? Is in anytime we force nature to do something against its nature for example when a, a ball by nature if you hold a ball and you let go of it it's going to fall downwards correct gravity most things will drop downwards now what happens if i push something upward that's against it's going against the gravity so how long if I as if I throw something in the air or throw something up, it's only gonna stay going upward as long as the force that I put behind the ball is still pushing the ball upward. The second that force stops, the gravity pull down is going to take back over, right? So anytime we force something to go against its nature, we need to constantly push. That item in whatever direction, however we want to, to get what we want, but that's again only forcing something to go against its nature. It's not creating something entirely. So miracles are less of a novelty than creation itself. So this is where he goes back. You know, there's a lot of conversation and a lot of document, uh, you know, documentaries. I believe recently there's been a few different ones that have over the last ten years or so, which have come out trying to prove the different miracles that happened in Egypt, um, whether scientifically or historically, but historians have a very hard time accepting the fact that, you know, miracles happened in the exodus of Egypt. Why? Because they're not, they weren't natural occurrences. So you don't have, there, there isn't really something to rally or pinpoint it to. But we do see One of the greatest miracles that happened during the Exodus was the splitting of the sea. That was probably one of the grandest phenomenons or spectacles that happened during the splitting of the sea. And the splitting of the sea is a great wonder. So over here he says this is the creation of the world is a greater marvel than the splitting of the Red Sea. For instance, where God caused the sea to recede with a strong east wind all night long. And the waters were split and stood upright like a mound and a wall. If God would have stopped the wind for an instant, the waters would have reverted and flowed downward in their natural way. They would undoubtedly not have stood like a wall, even though this natural tendency of water to flow downward is also a novel phenomenon created from nothings. For a stone wall stands upright by itself without the support of the wind, but is not the nature of water. So there's a lot of different Things over here that I can try to unpack, but I want to keep it. Uh, if I'm getting uh, any confusing, just let me know. So there's a few different points over here that Al-Turabi is making by pe- bringing an example from the splitting of the sea. The first, the main point, is a very straight, straight-up point. The splitting of the sea is a phenomenon that God made the water stand. We know natural. The natural uh, flow of water is that it goes downward or it moves. The fact that the water um, by the splitting of the sea stood upright, right, and was something which needed constant support in order to happen. So if even going against the nature of things needs constant energy, right? If for something to go against its normal routine something needs to constantly make that happen how much more so creation itself which didn't exist right materialism doesn't exist in order for it to exist it needs a constant boost of energy from its source to can keep it into existence that's the first primary element that he the statement he wants to make but he wants there, there's a few different layers here without there he wants to go deeper and one of them is in is noted over here, even though this natural tendency of water is also a novel phenomenon. Once we understand that creation itself, and once we realize that creation itself is an existence from nothing to something, and therefore, is not there's nothing about creation that should be taken for granted, the laws of nature or all elements of creation as we see it are all divinely inspired or dictated. So then we realize that water itself is only running naturally because currently that's the way the energy that God is sending is telling it to do. But theoretically, the same way the nature of water right now is to flow, God could change the nature of water to be standing. And yet we see when God wanted to create a miracle, he didn't change the nature of the water. He brought a wind to constantly keep the water standing. So we see the way God interacts with the world, even when it's just changing a nat- what we're accustomed to seeing as a natural tendency. God does so by actively changing it. So how much more so God does so when it comes to creation itself? And this answers a deeper question where we're not just trying to rationalize why the world can't rationally it doesn't just exist on its own but needs god's constant energy but also a question a little deeper even now that i believe in god and understand that god created the world and he created from nothing to something why how do i know that god didn't create the world in a way which he's absent maybe god did create the world but he's so great that he could create the world and stand away so over we here we answer we see by the splitting of the sea The way God split the sea, we see that God is very active in everything. From the fact that the way he changed the water, he didn't just change the nature of the water, but he actively kept on a wind blowing to keep the water standing. So if we see even miracles God is so actively involved, how much more so in creation itself that God is constantly involved. But the kind of coming full circle and the point he's making over here once you understand as well from this point that creation itself is a phenomenon now the idea of miracles is not such a outlandish thing what's of course god could create miracles god is constantly creating the world so god could at any point come in and change things god is not it's not like when a miracle happens you need to page god and say hey we need a miracle going on over here god is constantly involved in keeping creation going and because everything of creation is a constant, you know, revitalization from God, so the idea that God is intimately involved, that there's divine providence, or that there could be a miracle, is no longer a major astonishment because the whole world is a miracle. The fact that we exist every second is a miracle. So back to the rationale over here: if the splitting of the sea, which is only changing nature, needed a constant wind in order for it to the water to stand upright, all the more so with regard to creation of existence from nothingness, which transcends the laws of nature and is even more astonishing wonder than the splitting of the Red Sea, that certainly upon the withdrawal of the creator's power from the creation, God forbid, the creation would literally revert to absolutely nothing. If God would cease to desire for the world's creation, cease to constantly infuse existence into existence... We would cease to be. There would be nothing. There's no when it comes to a copying molded from silver, the silver pre-existed. So therefore, if, if once I reshape the the silver, there's nothing, there's no reason to assume the silver will fall apart because the silver pre-existed before. But with creation, there was nothing theoretically three seconds ago that to guarantee that in three seconds from now, there will continue to be something. And every moment, our existence is contingent on God keeping existence in creation, uh, creation into being. Rather, the force of the creator must constantly be within creation to grant it life and sustain it. So over here, he's going to analyze i may i'm gonna go through this i'll see if i want to revisit this again next week in another lens but uh over here he's going to go back to what is that energy that is bringing that the what is that energy of god that keeps existence into being so we spoke about last week we mentioned that the words the 10 utterances of creation is what is the conduit yes to keep that brings creation into a constant existence so he's going to revisit this and hopefully also there's i'll preempt this a little bit the needless to say speech as we know it is not the same speech that god has spirit to say god is not is beyond existence and can't really be defined in any way so the way we use speech Is very hard, is not really the same in the way God, the speech of the way God uses. However, the Torah uses specific terms because there is specific logic and reasoning behind each thing. So, although God's speech is not like, is, is not the same as ours, but the fact that the Torah uses the terminology of speech for God. Means that the same that there are elements, components of our speech that can help us understand how God works as well. So, from analyzing our speech, we get an idea as well into the mechanism of how God does things, and we'll touch on it a little bit here about how creation comes from speech. I, I don't recall down how much we'll talk about it, but this is a big topic analyzed in great detail within Hasidic philosophy. Is how why speech is the metaphor for creation why is um and so on and so forth so we're going to delve a little bit into the hasidic theory behind what speech is and how speech is the can do it for energy and so on and so forth so this force is none other than the letters of the ten utterances through which heaven and earth were created And regarding this, the verse states, You made the heavens, the earth, and everything that is on it, and you sustain them all. Now, the word in Hebrew is mechaya. The word in Hebrew, mechaya, can be translated in two different ways. The general way we understand this verse, v'atim mechayes kulam, is that you sustain them. However, mechaya comes from the word chai, which also means life. So, Hasidus says, interpret this verse, which not only as that you sustain them that you keep that that you give them what they need but rather do not read sustain but rather cause to be that is to bring existence from nothing so instead of optima khayes meaning that you sustain them but you bring life to everything that through the words of creation god is constantly bringing life into existence and what's the significance over here? So this is where we'll see a Kabbalistic style Kabbalistic of analytics style of in Hasidus. The Atta, U, right? The word ata has hidden significance. Why? The word ata is made up of the letters Aleph, Taf, and He. So Atta, the letters Aleph to Taf. So Aleph is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Taf is the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So the va'ata of the aleph taf of and you in the verse present the totality of the Hebrew letters from aleph and taf. So when we say you, it doesn't just mean you, but the letters and the words of the utterances. The letters from a to z, basically, <laughs> from aleph to taf, are what bring existence into creation and in, into being. Ba'ata mechaya, the U, the letters, is what brings life into everything. And it doesn't end there. So remember, there's three letters. There's the Aleph, there's the Taf, and there's the He. What's the significance of the He? The He and the numerical equivalent of the final letter of the word, Ba'ata, the letter Hey, which is five, represents the five organs of articulation, the origins of the letters. So when we speak, there's five different p- parts of our body that are used to articulate all the different ris- letters. Um, the throat, the palate, the tongue, the teeth, and the lips, right? Each of those things are part of our expression. So the hey at the end is the modes of expression. And I don't want to get into it in detail, but in Kabbalah as well, it's discussed how there's four different enter- forces, you know, sources of energy that the letters can be coming through as well. So the same way we have four different um, organs or modes that help that we channel our wording, our letters through. So the same thing is true with regard to God and in creation that the letters and the words of God have four different channels in which they are, which they can be coming through in order for creation to happen. So, Over here, he's going to address slightly the fact that we're using speaking of God as using speech and having five different modes of the words going through, even though, although God has no bodily form. So when we use the terminology of speech and organs, obviously, we're not talking about physical speech and organs. However, the Torah categorically states about him, the Lord spoke and the Lord said, we see all the time the terminology of the words. The terminology that God spoke, he God said, and so on and so forth. So there's definitely in the way God interacts with us, there is a form of words or expression or speech. And it's the same speech. Anytime in, uh, I'll try to explain this a little bit. In Hasidus, basically what he's going to say over here is that what we see from a Kabbalistic standpoint, anytime God interacts with something beyond him or does something where there's that affects sort of say something beyond him, even though there's not it's a whole different conversation on that term that I just used. But when God sort of say interacts with creation, whatever dimension it may be, he does throw, speech is that way of doing so. And that's why we see constantly God va'idaber, va'yomer, God spoke, God said, so on and so forth. And it's the same speech that's used for dictating ideas, metaphors, prophecies, is the same speech which caused creation. The divine speech represents the revelation of the 22 supernal letters to the prophets, which became enclosed in their ent- intellect and their comprehension in the form of prophetic vision, and is also in their thoughts, and, and is also in their thoughts and speech. As written, the S- the spirit of the Lord spoke through me, and His word is on my tongue, as interpreted by their reason. So, just like we see the terminology of the concept of God speaking, whether it's through vision or actually physically having words said through His prophets, that same speech is. In a similar fashion, the same way his speech got enclothed and formed ideas. That same way, God's w- words become clothed and create the world. In a similar fashion, letters became enclothed in clothing, the creations that are, as it is written, by the word of the Lord, where the heavens made by the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. So, I, I want to step back and try to elaborate on this a little bit. There's, I'll do it. We just had a beautiful musical evening on Sunday, so I'll take music as a. uh as an example, right? When we speak about music or notes, if I want to record music, there are multiple forms and avenues in which I can do that. I can record it on a cassette player. I can record it on a CD. I can record it on my phone. Or I can record it by writing it down into notes. In each of the these recordings I'm using different techniques the way a cassette records is a different technique than the way a CD records and the way is is, which is different than the digital recording which is different than notes which is writing down on paper right and the way I would also hear or be able to after the recording the way I would be able to determine the tune would also be different I can't play I need a cassette player to play the cassette I need a CD player to play the CD Right, I need a computer or phone to play a digital file, and for notes, I don't unless I can hear the tune in my head without actually pressing play if I know how to read notes. Right? What's but at the same time, we're all recording the same song, correct? So over here as well, God's mode of expression it can be the same words. And yet, depending on the mode or the way that they're being interacted with, interacted in, they will become expressed or recorded in a different format. So God's words and can be on a more refined level or in the spiritual realms, exist more as concepts as and are, are felt as the word of God, so on and so forth. Whereas in this world, God's words become enclosed in creation itself. But everything is still all an expression of God. It's all the same music notes. And this is where we see a concept, for example, Torah. The Torah itself is a concept which predates predates creation. And we're told that the angels studied the Torah before it was given to mankind. However, as Moses argued with the angels when the angels didn't want Moses to take the Torah, is that the physical form of the Torah is only prevalent in this world. So the physical, the way the God's words taking on a form of actual creation only happens when it comes into creation in this world. However, they're all and all levels, they're all infused and empowered by the word of God. Right? So what's the difference? Why is how what's the difference? The difference is. On how expressive and how in tune the mode, like when I said when a digital file or a recording of music, when you press play, you hear the notes, right? When the notes get written down on a piece of paper, unless you know how to read the notes, it doesn't by default play a song unless you know how to read the notes. But the song is recorded. So the same thing with God's words, depending on how it's being sort of say encapsulated, how it's being perceived be well, depending on how clear the messaging or the wording or the music, the tune of God is. So the more physical it's being expressed, the less we may see the tune of God hidden behind the expression. So what makes a difference between God's words being expressed in a prophecy or in, a, in the act of creation is on how revealed God's presence is felt in that transmission. So, however, this enclothing of the letters in the creation only comes about through many immense transmutations until they descend into the corporal world of action, whereas the comprehension of the prophets is in the world of a, in a higher spiritual sphere, which becomes enclosed in the world of creation. I don't want to get involved in the different worlds, but the concept is the stage of the recording is a more of a refined, sort of say, transmission of God's message. So, therefore, in prophecy, God's message is a lot more clear. Whereas in this physical realm, God's message is a little bit less visible or processed, but God's message is still behind every element in creation. I'll revisit this idea. There's a very powerful message in how we look at the world um, that comes out from here that's a little off topic. But the goal of the main, main point over here is that the is making over here, and this is going into the process and how we see creation and God's connection with the world is understanding that every moment that we're living in is another miracle that god is making be and like we said once we, if we can understand that we meditate on this concept that god is constantly needs to infuse life into creation then the idea of god divine providence and the idea of miracles can also become something which is un, is is is, is not a is not a uh, is not a shock in any way shape or form so, like we said in the first chapter, he try he stated this point and more as a matter of fact. In this last chapter, he wanted to explain: is the reality is, is that creation is not a built off pre-existing materials. Existence comes to be from nothing, and for that to continue to exist, it's just like trying to keep a ball in the air. You need to constantly blow or or. You know, find something or hold it in the ear because the second you let go, it's going to drop. The same thing with creation. God constantly is holding us into existence because the second he pulls away, there's nothing to force it to remain in existence. Um, so that's the take- main takeaway from this chapter. And like I said, when we have more time, maybe beginning of next week, I'll try to give a little take, a beautiful takeaway on the extent, the power of being a part of God's uh, plans and this then come out specifically in this world um, based off what we learned to the end of this chapter as well. But uh, we'll do that. And if you want to read ahead at all so that you want to be more engaged in the conversation, we're going to be probably starting chapter three next week. If you want to read ahead before we do that.